Good morning, family. How's everybody doing? What? Good? Yeah? (laughs) So we're back in the book of Mark again. Last week we took a break and talked about fathers and how the earthly relationship that we have with our earthly fathers influences our relationship with our heavenly father. If you missed that one, you can check it out on SoundCloud, soundcloud soundcloud.com, and just look for LifeSpring Bible Church and you'll get the message. You can go all the way back to the beginning when we were Change Point uh, Northeast back on there. So there's a message to go all the way back there. So feel free to do that. So we're going to go into Mark 7 is where we're picking up where we left off. We're in Mark 7, verses 1 through 23. The same passage is also recorded, similar instance, in Matthew 15, verses 1 through 20. It's kind of a long passage, so I'm going to read through the whole thing, and then we'll break it down. You guys there? Mark 7? Everybody good? All right, Mark 7. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law, who had come from Jerusalem, gathered together around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were, quote-unquote, unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. They observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. And in some translations, it says even dining couches. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating their food with unclean hands? He replied, Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. That's humbling. I wouldn't want Jesus to be saying that to me. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, Whatever help you might otherwise have from me, have received from me, is Corban, that is, a gift devoted to God. Then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of a man's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. Lord, again, we just come to you and ask that you would bring clarity to your word. There's a lot in here. I pray that you would open our eyes, Lord, like Psalm 119, 18 says, open our eyes and let us see the wonderful things in your law. Come against distraction, Lord. Prepare hearts and minds now to receive your word, Lord, in Jesus' name. And help me get out of the way. 
and to speak your truth. Jesus' name. So I've entitled this, section, this uh, passage, Don't Forget to Clean Your Inside. So let's break this down. In verses 1 through 5, the Pharisees and scribes, they come to Jesus and they share their observations with him about the disciples. So they say, Jesus, how come your disciples aren't washing their hands? They're unclean. And we have a little bit of uh, trouble understanding that in our, in our modern day culture because we're thinking hygiene-wise, right? Everybody washes their hands before they eat. But that's not what the Pharisees were talking about. It had nothing to do with hygiene. It had to do with their tradition. So in the book of Leviticus, if you go back and you look at the priestly requirement to enter God's presence, there was a requirement for them to clean themselves, spiritually speaking. They were supposed to do some physical acts that represented getting clean so they can go into God's presence. And over time, by the time Jesus arrived on the scene here, they had taken that tradition and carried it out further than what God intended. So the idea was if you touched a dead body or if you touched a dead animal or if you touched somebody who was quote-unquote unclean, then it made you unclean and you couldn't enter into God's presence. And so the priests did all this ritual and the tradition of the elders had extended it to everybody wanting to keep themselves clean. And that wasn't God's original requirement. So what ended up being this thing for the priests turned into basically xenophobia. So the Pharisees, as they would walk through the marketplace, if they brushed up against somebody who was quote-unquote unclean, if it was a woman on her cycle or a stranger, a Gentile, then they would run home and basically obsessive-compulsively clean themselves almost. And they would go so far as to clean their utensils, even their couches. And it was a little bit out of hand. There was no love involved with that. It had missed the intent of what God was trying to show them. So the Pharisees, this takes me to my first point, they had basically taken what was physical, a physical act, and they determined that something was going on internally. And so they were basically saying, your disciples aren't clean, and by association, Jesus, we're not so sure you're clean, and we're not so sure that you're teaching the right thing either. So they were focused on a rule set, focused on appearances, instead of what was really going on. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he's, the, uh, he's a theologian from Germany during World War II, in uh, his book, The Cost of Discipleship. He says, judging others makes us blind, whereas love is illuminating. By judging others, we blind ourselves to our own evil and to the grace which others are just as entitled to as we are. And the Pharisees were missing that point. Nate, I'm going to set this aside because it's a little bit distracting for me. The same is true for us today. We're not that different from the Pharisees. What are the rules, the paradigms, the mindsets, the rule sets that we have that we impose on other people and if they're not living up to them, we're questioning their, their belief in God or if they're really Christians. And even worse, what God is doing we're missing and calling bad. Our view is probably slanted if we don't have a right understanding of who God is. All right, I'm going to bring up the triangle again. You guys are probably getting sick of seeing this thing. Every time I talk, I bring, it seems like I bring it up. So for those of you who've never seen this before, I know there's a couple that, that are new here today. Welcome, by the way. Uh, the up is our relationship with the Father. The in is our relationship with each other, the body of Christ. And then the out is our relationship with the world, the up, in, and out. The triangle can also be used to look at our relationship with our Father for ourselves. So the up is what God is telling us through his word. The in is what the Holy Spirit is doing in us 
taking that word and changing our hearts. And then the out is the demonstration of our life after the Holy Spirit has done that work. And so if you go to up, in, and out, then it's a healthy relationship. God is telling you what to do. The Holy Spirit's working in you, changing you, molding you into the person he wants you to be. And then your life is demonstrating fruit. If you can go to the next slide, Nate. When we try to skip the up of hearing from God and what he's saying and then go directly to the trying to make our life look good, that's where the rule sets, tradition, the legalism, the hypocrisy, that's where that all starts to take effect. Religiosity. Basically, turns into this. We substitute rule sets, traditions, in order to make it look like the life is happening in us, but it's really not. It becomes works-based. We focus on the external appearance rather than the internal reality. And we, cri- we criticize the good and value the bad. So things like this over here, this was actually bugging me earlier on. Over here. This tree's a little bit slanted. I'm just going to fix that there because it was bugging me. <laughs> was it bugging you too? <laughs> yeah. And I'm not calling you out because that is so don't take this the wrong way. But when we focus on something like that, instead of what God's doing in us, that's a little bit of the, the rule set and religiosity that we're starting to get into. Which gets us into my second point here, where we start to value the traditions of men over God's commandments. So Jesus uses this Corbin example in verses 6 through 13. And he talks about Corbin. So what does that mean? The word Corbin actually means dedicated or devoted to God. Liz and I actually know a a kid, who, some friends who named their kid Corbin. It's a pretty cool name. But in this context, what had become a commandment from God, honor your father and your mother, had been extended into a tradition or had been usurped by a tradition. So this tradition of Corbin was an individual had a lot of money, let's say, had made some money for themselves and decided to dedicate it to God. That was called Corbin. So they would dedicate their their resources, their money, their inheritance to God. And then in practice, what ended up happening was that instead of using that money to take care of their parents as they should in that culture, they were telling their parents, sorry, mom and dad, I dedicated my money to God, so I can't help you. And so they weren't honoring their mother and their father that way. It was basically a loophole for them to get out of their responsibility. And so Jesus was calling them out on that. He said, you're using this tradition to nullify the word of God. And how many times do we do that in our culture? So there's things that we traditionally don't do or traditionally do in our culture, and yet we nullify the word of God. So the, the instance that's coming to mind immediately is uh, the old saying, don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do. <laughs> yeah, or guys for that. Yeah, that's true. So... Smoking, drinking, and chewing tobacco. None of those things are in the Bible as far as forbidden. The Bible has some things to say about consuming alcohol in moderation, but as far as saying that's illegal or not of God, that's, it's not in there. And yet, as Christians, we apply that standard to folks. So then when we come across somebody who's maybe smoking a cigarette, and God says, go talk to that person, and we say, well, that guy's smoking a cigarette. We're nullifying the word of God by not doing what he's saying to do. Style counts for nothing in God's kingdom, in his, in his economy. It's all about the heart. There's a quote from Charles Spurgeon that I want to read to you. Charles Spurgeon is a, uh, a famous preacher. 
back in the, uh, I believe, the 1800s. He says, God requires soul worship and man gives him body worship. He asks for the heart and they present him with their lips. He demands their thoughts and their minds and they give him banners, investments, and candies. It's not about the external. It's about the internal. What's God doing in our heart? Now, don't get me wrong. Not all traditions are bad. There's some things that we do here as traditions that are actually good, right? Uh, we saw baptisms a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we do communion from time to time. Uh, we sing worship songs. That's not necessarily mandated in the Bible anywhere. We just do it as a tradition. But when we try to use those things to earn our way into God's favor or place them above what his Holy Spirit is doing, then that's where it becomes a bad thing. If we put our trust in those things instead of who Jesus is and his work on the cross, then we're misplacing those traditions. Charles Spurgeon goes on to say, no matter how painful may be the mortification, how rigid the penance, how severe the abstinence, no matter how much may be taken from his purse or from the wine vat or from the store, he will be content to suffer anything sooner then bow before the Most High with a true confession of sin and trust in the appointed Savior with sincere childlike faith. So if you could put the triangle back up there, Nate, I'd appreciate it. When we try to go from up to out without letting the Lord do the work in the inn, without submitting our life to Christ, without bowing before him as our Lord and Savior, it's going to lead to the religiosity. And to some extent, some of us are so proud that we'd rather do all of those things We'd rather give of our money. We'd rather give whatever penance we have to pay for our sin because we love our sin more than we love Jesus. So it's not about putting rule sets above God's word. And this applies to the church too. Ryan and I had a discussion about the sermon points this week. We were talking about it. And he was sharing, can I share this, Ryan, about uh, Furtick? Is that, well, I shouldn't say his name, but about what we were talking about. <laughs> uh, we were talking about how sometimes it appears that uh, a preacher starts to delve into self-help or um, prosperity gospel or something like that. And it's something that we need to watch out for as a church. Because it goes back, if you could put the triangle back up, love that triangle. It goes back to... What are we trying to achieve? Are we trying to establish rule sets to get to God and to, to demonstrate something to people? Or are we really, really willing to allow the Holy Spirit to work in us? And so as a church, what ends up happening is we try to take the place of Christ instead of being the hands and feet of Christ. And what do I mean by that? So Liz and I, we used to work with a homeless ministry back when we lived in Virginia several years ago. And I remember coming across uh, some guys who just don't have it together. The kind of guys that uh, can't make it anywhere on time, have self-esteem issues, don't believe that they can really get a job and hold a job. And as I would come in contact with these guys, it's really easy to just say, hey, dude, let me show you how to do this. All you got to do is believe in yourself and you can hold a job and your life will get better. And where's the gospel message in that? You hear what I'm saying? We start to try to be Jesus to them, to show them the way in and of our own selves and our own experience apart from Christ, when really what he needs is Jesus. He needs the Lord. And so when we, as a church, if we ever start going down that road of you need to believe in yourself, you need to have self-esteem, positive power thinking, and, and prosperity gospel and all that kind of stuff, and we're not giving them Jesus, 
We're missing it. We're starting to get into the rule sets and the religiosity. Personally, if you find yourself striving rather than abiding in Christ, if you find yourself trying to look good externally, how can we fix that? How can we submit ourselves to the Lord? The semicircle is a great way of doing that. If you can throw that one up there. So Greg's talked about this before, another shape. Rest versus work. Striving versus bearing fruit. So how does this work? If we're doing the hypocrisy thing, the religiosity thing that I was talking about, trying to make the externals look good, we're working. We're working out of our own strength. We're trying to do things in our own strength. We're trying to make things look good. We're straightening up the plant in the back of the church to make sure nobody's distracted by that. But there's, there's no substance behind it. What we're supposed to be doing in the Lord is resting in Him, abiding in Him, delighting in Him. Seek first the kingdom of God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And as we press into Him, as we abide in Him, He starts to do things in us, and the fruit of the Spirit will naturally come out and works will come from it. And the works that are making our faith evident are going to come out in a healthy way. And there will be work that's done. It's not just laziness singing kubaya in your bed to God. It's truly abiding with him. And from what he's doing in you, it's going to be uncontainable. You're going to explode forward because God is doing something in you and you can't contain it. And that work is going to come out. And you're going to grow. And then there'll be a season of pruning where you press back into the Lord and you go back to him for the source. And then he causes you to grow. And then that rhythm just swings back and forth. As you continually try to press in the Lord, he's going to explode you forward. You press in the Lord, he explodes you forward. And it becomes this rhythm of grace. That's much better than striving and trying to do things in our own strength and then we get burnt out. And if we try to do things in our own strength, we get to a scary place. Let me read a couple of scriptures to you that are very scary to me. So John 5, 39 through 40, and then put your finger there in Matthew 7, 20 through 23. We're going to read those two. So Matthew 7, 20 through 23, put your finger there, and then John 5, 39 through 40. I'll start with the one in John. So John 5, 39 through 40, Jesus says, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess, possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet, you refuse to come to me and have life. So you can spend your whole life studying this Bible. There are plenty of guys in seminary and theological schools that do that. But do they really know who Jesus is? And then likewise in Matthew 7, 20 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoer. And I skipped to verse 20 there. Thus by their fruit you will recognize them. Talking about false prophets. So you could have somebody there on the other end of the spectrum. Somebody who knows the word we just covered in John and then somebody who's operating in the gifts of the Spirit Performing miracles, casting out demons, giving prophetic words, things that nobody else could have known, and yet they don't know God. And Jesus, at the end of their day, says, apart from me, I never knew you. That's really scary. 
those are some pretty significant outward displays of this guy has a relationship with God, but yet the internal is still a mess. So how do we know? How do we know? It goes back to the abiding, the semicircle. We need to be abiding in him, loving him, and let the fruit come from that. Not shooting for the externals, not trying to look good. That inward part, that's the part we need to be focusing on as Christians. The part that nobody sees, because God sees it. And in verse 14, I'll read it again, of Mark 7. He says, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. It's that internal man, that inward man, that if it's not regenerated and not cleansed by the work of the Lord, it's still going to be dirty no matter what the outside is showing. You know, the world's got this mindset that we need to protect ourselves from the evil that's out there. Man is fundamentally good, and if he just follows his inner being or his inner voice, he's going to be good. And Christians even more so believe that because it sounds good. It sounds like the gospel, right? But the reality of it is, if that inward man is not redeemed, that's ugliness. And that's the source of all sin. That's the source of all the evil we see in the world. There's this, this mindset that, and even as Christians, we adopt it, right? That if we guard ourselves from the evil that's out in the world, then we'll be okay. And that's not the way it works. If you can go to the next slide. That's a defensive mindset. If you look on the right side, that's a staying clean mindset, which sounds good, especially when you, if you're coming out of addiction and you're just trying to stay clean, which is a good thing because your life is changing. But just operating in that as a Christian, staying clean, you're guarding against evil, distrusting your neighbor, distrusting the surroundings that got you there or you think that got you there, and you start to live in fear and isolation as a Christian. But really, we need to be changed from the inside out Move forward. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Go and make disciples of all the nations. That's the stuff that God's requiring of us. That's more of an offensive mindset, not just guarding against evil. Does that make sense? So we've got to be careful that we're not on that defensive mindset, especially as the body of Christ. Because if we start to insulate ourselves and protect ourselves from the quote-unquote evil in the world, we're missing the fact that it's the evil in us that's going to cause problems. And we've got to let that work be dealt with by the power of the Lord. And then we can take that stuff out into the world and make a difference that way. Let the light shine in the darkness. If you don't have light in you and you go out into some dark places, then you're not going to have impact. But if that light is truly light and you step into a dark place, you're going to have a difference. What was that Father of Lights thing that we, that we watched? I'll quickly give an example of this. Uh, we watched a movie called Father of Lights, a documentary that this guy's done documenting things that God is doing around the world. And there's an example he gives of this man who hears from the Lord, and the Lord told him to go to this village in the middle of India and go meet this guy who turned out to be a witch doctor. He didn't know he was. He's just kind of walking where God's leading him. And he stepped into this village where this man was a witch doctor who had been known to curse pastors and cause them to die. And so he steps into this village just wanting to meet with the man. And the man... Uh, doesn't want to talk with him. In fact, he's so confused that he goes into his hut and is just leave. And they're kind of confused as to why this guy won't meet with him because he meets with everybody in the surrounding area. He's a pretty powerful man in that region. And his wife starts to explain to him that he's confused because his spirits have left him. He's, he's blind. He can't see what's going on. 
And all they had done was followed God's instructions, stepped into the village with the power of God on them, and that's all it took. That's all it took. They took Jesus into the place, and that power that they brought with them, the power of the Holy Spirit, was enough to squash the demonic presence that was there. We're all sinners in need of God's grace. We've got to realize that and embrace his saving work because our hearts are sinful. From an eternal perspective, the heart condition is just as bad as the act. Like Jesus says, if you curse your brother, it's just as bad as murdering him. If you think a lustful thought, it's just as bad as committing adultery. It's the same thing in God's economy. So how do we guard against that? Well, let's talk about the opposition a little bit more. I think I've talked about this before, if you could bring up the next one. These are the things that are opposed to us, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are the things that cause us to sin. And we can get caught up in the combination of those things working in tandem, the world and the flesh, the devil in our flesh, the world and whatever. They work in combination to cause us to stumble. But the reality of those three things is Jesus Christ has overcome the world. John 16, Take heart, for I have overcome the world. So not a factor. First of all, do you believe that? The work on the cross by Jesus has defeated Satan. There's plenty of scripture to back that up. There's one in there, Revelation 12, 10 through 11. I've got a few more here. James 4, 7, Romans 16, 20. Satan is not a threat to us. Like I was saying in that example, of the Father of Lights documentary. You just walk in with the presence of God, with Jesus on you, the devil can't touch you. So the evil one is not a factor. Again, do you believe that? Because if you're struggling with any of those two, that's something that we need to pray about after this. That Jesus has overcome the world and he's defeated Satan. Where there is no scripture to support that Jesus has overcome, the, there is no scripture to support that Jesus has overcome our flesh, so to speak. I was talking about that with Greg, just making sure I wasn't, uh, this, this past week, making sure I wasn't saying something that's not true. Because it's not a Jesus take the wheel thing when it comes to our fleshly desires. And when I mean flesh, I'm not talking about our bodies. I'm talking about the internal inward man that's sinful and wants to do its own thing. When we submit ourselves to Christ daily, and that takes an act of our will, that's what leads to sanctification. That's where God is doing the work, and that's where real life happens. That's the battleground for all of us as Christians, is our sinful nature. Because the source of sin is our hearts, our own evil desires. Let's look at Galatians 5, 16 through 25. Getting close to the end here. Galatians 5, 16 through 25. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. So there's these two things going on inside of us, two dogs fighting. There's the, the selfish dog that wants to do its own thing, the inward man, and then there's a spiritual dog. And the one that you feed is the one that's going to be more powerful. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. It's the same list that Jesus read off in the passage in Mark there. Almost the same. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, 
dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And those who live like that in secret will not inherit the kingdom of God. Because you can have an outward display of my life looks good, but in your car, on weekends, in your bathroom, it's a different thing. You think people aren't looking. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus, there's the test there, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So that's it right there, crucifying our sinful man, the sinful nature. And it's not a Jesus take the wheel thing. I said that earlier. It's not about God, take this away. That's not how it works. Greg sent me uh, the devotional. Uh, I think it was Friday. Thanks for sending that. It really applied to the day. It's a, it's a dying to self, but it's not just the Jesus take this away. There's an active part of our will that takes part of that. Let me read this to you because this really blew me away. It really blessed me. We are told to live spirit-filled lives, so we become passive. We've incorrectly assumed that any effort on our part is quote-unquote works, a product of the flesh and a symptom of legalism. We end up with a faith without works, and as we find out, that kind of faith is dead. Self-control is perhaps the most confusing of all the fruits of the Spirit. How can it involve the self and the Spirit at the same time? If it's self-control, how can it be spirit control? It can't. Contrary to popular teaching, the Bible never tells us to be controlled by the Spirit, at least not in the sense that we lose our personality and will. We are to be born of the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit, inspired by the Spirit, and sealed by the Spirit. But we are not controlled by the Spirit. The Spirit enables us to have self-control. Man, that really blew me away. It's like, whoa. It's an active part of my will that I need to be submitting myself to Christ. And he enables me to do it, but it's not a, Lord, take this away. Jesus, take the wheel. It doesn't work that way. We don't lose ourselves in him. We find ourselves in him. If we're not dying to self, if we're clinging to our own selfish, sinful desires, then the rule sets, traditions, the do's and don'ts will seem like a convenient way to meet the intent, produce the effect, show the action of compliance with God's word. And that produces shallow traditions, legalism, and hypocrisy as we rot away from the inside and end up with the destiny of death. The heart can only be cleansed by Christ, saving work, and the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. So how do we do that? We've talked about the semicircle, talked about the triangle. Really, it just comes down to listening to the Lord's voice and obeying. What's he saying to you? And then humbling ourselves daily to him. Mitch, if you could come up. We don't lose ourselves in him, we find ourselves in him. That was something just this morning that I got from the Lord. And when I said it to you guys, I felt like there was something behind that. So I really want to pray over that. Pray that over you guys.
So if there's somebody struggling here with traditions, legalism, following rules instead of really letting the Holy Spirit work in you, we want to pray over you. Maybe it's somebody wrestling with their flesh. Somebody who's got something, an addiction or some habit that they really want to shake off. And you have to realize it's not just a God take this away. There's going to be an active, willful work, faith-based work that has to happen there. And maybe this is the first time that you're hearing Christ. Maybe you don't know him. And all of this that I'm saying, you're not going to be able to do any of it without Jesus. I know I couldn't. So with every head bowed and eye closed, eyes closed, I'm just going to pray. Greg, if you come up and help me pray this out. We'll start with that last one there. If there's anybody here who does not know Jesus, let me tell you, life is so much better with him. It's not easier, but it is better. If there's anybody here who doesn't know Christ and wants to know him and feels that tug on their heart, just ask that you slip your hand up. For those of you who know him, pray. Pray that the Lord would tug on those heartstrings right now. there's anybody here who's struggling with something, an addiction, something that's keeping them back from a relationship with the Lord, going deeper with him, we want to pray for you too. And then finally, if there's somebody here who's been struggling with hypocrisy and rule sets and rule following and trying to make their life look good, but not letting the Lord do the real work inside. Slip your hand up. We want to pray for you too.